Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Sosner. And today we are getting back into the Eternals, only now they are extreme! Excelsior! Wow, I lost you there for a second. I might have stepped on your extreme. <laughs> no, I think we're good. I think I blew out my mic a little bit there, but that's how that e- is perfect for this era. That is how extreme these issues were. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Get uh, ready, folks. It's crazy because, so the comics we're reading today, uh, we start in 1989, and the, the the latest comics we read this week were uh, for 1994, and it's crazy how, like, fast the 90s happen. You know what I mean? I was shocked. Normally, when you get books, you know, at the beginning of a decade, uh, when you're reading back through them... You're like, oh, the 80s were defined by this. The 90s defined by this. And like in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, when we were reading stuff that was near the beginning of the decade, it really still felt like the previous decade. Like there were, you could see the changes happening, but like the 90s, they hit the ground running and they don't stop. I feel like in actuality, most, uh, you know, decades are arbitrary and most of the time uh, the the styles like bleed in from decade to decade. Yeah. And then, and the 1989 comics felt like Bronze Age 80 comics to me. And then I feel like in nine, from 90 to 91, everything changes. And from 91 to 92, everything changes so far that there's not even like institutional memory of how we once used to be. For sure. Yeah. It's wild. Genuinely. I was genuinely shocked this whole time. So in, like in general, um, what what like Marvel '90s have you done? I'm realizing we haven't really read much '90s for this podcast. No, I haven't read all that much. I do have some '90s Namor comics. I think they may have even been John Byrne. I think they um, probably were. I think the covers were Jay Lee because um, they have that that uh, very heavy dark inking. I yeah I I, re- I know those Jay Lee covers you're talking about. I think that must be the same series. Yeah, probably. I've got a few issues of that, and I've read. I mean, I've watched the '90s Spider-Man co- uh, show, but not the X-Men. Love show? that show. Not the X-Men show. That's wild. I mean, I also love that Spider-Man show. Yeah, I love. I love the Spider-Man. In but the very last I've- episode of that mm-hmm. show, Captain America shows up, and he's played by Solid Snake. That show is so cool. Yes, so good. If only it had continued. Yeah. Maybe, Although maybe, we, knows, we yeah. may not have been saying that if it did continue. <laughs> but and also, who knows? Literally, they're bringing back the X-Men cartoon from the 90s. Oh, that's a good point. If, uh, that's a good point. If that's a huge hit, who's to say they won't continue to mo- uh, mine millennial nostalgia? That's a hard thing to say. Mine millennial nostalgia. I think Disney will find a way. They always do. They have so far. Um, yeah. But anyway, we're, t- we're not talking about film rights. We're talking about extreme 90s comics uh but we're, oh yeah we're, but also we're like getting back into eternals so when we last left off like what was where were we with eternals what was like the tone of eternals world world they were weirdly what's the word for it it was very it was less soap operatic than like the other comics were and far more like a they were trying to be a royal drama and a murder mystery and neither of it worked and it was just kind of 
all over the place. But yeah. it still had that like grandiose feel like it was trying to be more in the vein of Thor than Thor and the Inhumans than in Spider-Man. Yeah, grandiose uh, intentions for sure. I feel like a tough thing with Eternals since before we started reading them and as we've been reading them is um, it's it's tough what's unique about the Eternals. We already have the gods. We already have the Inhumans. We got like a lot of similar cast of characters. Mm-hmm. And based on the issues we read for this week, like nothing is unique about the Eternals. This completely like sands them down into being just like Spider-Man, who is just God. like Punisher, who is just like Thor. Sometimes yep. literally, because Thor is Thunderstrike now. <laughs> oh yeah, I was wondering what was going on with that. Oh yeah, that was that was uh, Eric Masterson, aka Thunderstrike. Yeah. Okay. So that wasn't Thor. That was that was Thunderstrike. It wasn't Thor changing his name. Yeah. Wasn't. Uh... Okay, good. Wasn't the son of Odin. Okay, good. Um, How that happens, okay. th- that's for a different podcast. Thor dies, Ragnarok, there's an electrician, he picks up Mjolnir. Oh, it's not Mjolnir, okay. it's, a, it's a different hammer. The hammer is also called Thunderstrike. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but that's because we're in 90s land, and in 90s land, uh, everything is uh, suddenly driven by marketing. This is when, like, there's rumors of a lot of, like, cocaine use happening around uh, the publishing offices. Woo! Um, but we're, like, far enough removed from partying with Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Mansion in the 70s and, like, the weird nerdy theater kids of the 80s. Like, now we're in real uh, hustle mode. Everyone's trying to sell an action figure. Mm. Speculator uh, boom is starting to to really catch on. Comics are worth... $10,000 each and they're buying 20 copies of them and polybagging and yeah. all those words that mean things. We're, and we're about on the crest of that because it starts in the early 90s and it ends by like, like by 96, 97 that bubble is bursting. Hmm. Okay. So the Eternals have survived that bubble with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like eight issues. Yeah. That's the entirety of their their space during this time. Well, kind of sort of cuz we didn't actually read every issue with Eternals in them. We only read the issues that feature the Eternals as like a group because Cersei has been a member of the Avengers since what? Since we read them last time in like 260 whatever. That's right. Oh no, two times ago, it was yeah. Cersei joined the Avengers, I think, in like two forty eight, I guess, maybe a little after. So she's she was on the Eternals for like a hundred issues on the Avengers. You mean and uh, and Gilgamesh yeah, yeah, yeah. had a, a stint with the Avengers in that time as well. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, Star Fox too, but I, he's that weird Starlin fold in that I don't really count in the same way. Yeah. 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 And. Uh, all of that's going to get figured out in the future. But um, tell me, Elias, do you remember a website called Sporkle.com? Yes, I do. I uh, so, spent many an hour on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, in college. Uh, when I was in college, that was very popular. And um, I would do a lot of comic book trivia stuff because that's fun for me. And mm-hmm. I did a lot of name every character on the roster of the Justice League or the X-Men or whatever. So I've done a bunch of them or every character who got a team up in a Marvel team up issue is a fun one. Oof. 
Um, yeah, because it's weird because like they came up with the monkeys and with Doctor Doom and and uh, Aunt Harlem May. Globetrotters. Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, yeah. So remembering all those issues and stuff, but. <laughs> Because I did the Avengers roster like a lot of times uh, to because I like uh, learning that trivia, like uh, there's a bunch of names who kind of stick out to you uh, as characters who didn't really catch on. And a lot of them are from this era, especially in the Avengers, like Silver Claw and Lionheart and Living Lightning. Yeah, I don't know any of them. Yeah, they're they're uh, also Justice and Firestar uh, joined the Avengers around a little later in the 90s. Um, ah, justice. Yeah, ah, ah, justice indeed. But yeah, so like the there's a couple Eternals characters who were mainstays on the Avengers books. Unfortunately, if you ask me, uh, most Avengers books are not really worth reading. Ooh, like uh, uh, Avengers. Every year that the Avengers were coming out, certainly until the 21st century, they were not as good as anything else coming out at the same time. That's fair. Okay, uh, but. I kind of enjoyed this Avengers stuff. The The 90s Avengers uh, kind of had a spark of life to them. It was lively. Yeah. I'm I'm hedging a little more because I think the... I actually liked the, the weird 80s stuff more. <laughs> and especially, like, the more issues we read, the less I liked what was going on. Like, the further in time we went. Uh, but that also could be because we skip, like, 50 issues. And suddenly we're in a completely different era. Yeah. Uh, with uh, with different artists, with different creators. I um, I think the 80s stuff we read was better. That was the closest I came to calling Eternals comics good. But I was not bored for a single one of these issues. And that's not usually the case. That's fair. Yes, that is true. I was never bored. Um, we're going to do... Elias is going to have read the whole dense credit block... Uh, in a little bit, but uh, there was a couple of like bigger name creators who we wanted to touch on before we started talking plot, right? Yeah. So primarily the writers in this case, but but we'll also shout out some of the the artists. Um, but we, I guess, we wanted to talk about the first three issues of of this were written by John Byrne, and then others were written by Bob Harris. Uh, so let's start with Bob Harris. Yeah, now I uh, I don't uh, have the ob- the specific allegations pulled up in front of me, uh, but it was a widely told joke when I was working in comic shops in the early 2010s that uh, Bob Harris's name is uh, is fitting to his demeanor and what he likes to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and Bob Harris um, is more famous for his time as an editor than a writer, though, right? Yeah, he was primarily a, an editor. He was an editor at Marvel, and then really where I had heard his la- name in the last 20 years uh, was over at DC. Uh, and it was actually big news, or big enough news, when he was finally either left or, or was fired from DC Comics. Uh, I think it was in the same wave that they finally got rid of uh, Eddie Braganza. Uh, Eddie Berganza got they, it was not in a wave with other people. They actually got rid of him because of things that he did. But I think Harris got they got rid of him when they were firing a lot of people. Oh, it was the AT and T. You merger. know, I, I'm trying to remember if it was that one or if it was the COVID uh, firings at the beginning. I, but I can't remember. But um, Berganza was because of good reporting from excellent people in the comics journalism community. Uh, yes, assembling like ironclad ev- uh, evidence. 
but so as a big X-Men fan, her, uh, Bob Harris is has like a big uh, stamp on the X-Men because I think I would credit him more than anybody else with uh, the end of like the Claremont era because mm. he's the one who really believed in uh, Rob Liefeld and was uh, and clearly wasn't a very pleasant fellow to work with. So he's telling... Um, Louis Simonson and uh, Chris Claremont, they got to listen to the new kid. Um, <laughs> and he did that like rudely enough that uh, they, that they left, that they were like, this is obviously going to be a bad office to work in. And even though we've been working here for some of us 17 years, uh, it's time to quit. Um, so Harris is like the guy who really shook up the X-Men for better and mostly for worse. It took a long time to recover from his uh, influence. And then he kind of had a similar... I mean, I don't know the, the the story as well as Marvel, but he had like a similar cooling effect at uh, talented DC. I understand. I would believe it for sure, especially re- both reading uh, stuff that he was involved in, you know, the stories, and also just reading the comics in those eras in in the early two thousands, and then, I mean, it's hard to say more, but for sure there was. I would say a dwindling of the talent pool at those offices. I mean, I bring back get Hedy Berganza. I think he was, Harris was one of the reasons why the guy didn't get fired. I think one of the stories was they moved people around because Berganza was head of the Wonder Woman office, which was under Superman's purview. Yeah. The whole thing. I, I, but I, we're not a DC podcast. No, although I, I do remember uh, that. I remember all that happening. I just, I remember vividly, actually. Um, yeah, and not, then, not good. And not then good you, stuff. You wanted to mention... Um, uh, John Byrne. John Byrne as well, right? Yeah, he's a big name at Marvel in the late... Uh, Starting with the 70s, mid? Dark Phoenix Saga. Heard of it? He was involved in that? He drew it. He was the artist? Yeah. Okay, he was the artist on that. That's okay. kind of his first, first uh, big... Uh, he did a bunch of issues before them, but his first uh, famous credit was um, Dark Phoenix Saga. Uh, he joined X-Men in number 108, and um, the the story that I hear now is that he and uh, Claremont had did not agree at all at directions the story should go in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Byrne who had Drew Phoenix like blowing up a sun and killing all those alien people, the broccoli people. Yeah. Um, and then later Claremont had like found out that Byrne had uh, made his story way more extreme and he had to like write around that. Oh, wow. But that was like, yeah, that was Byrne like uh, moving in kind of without talking to anybody else and making a big character decision, which clearly had ramifications. Ruh, ruh. Yeah, it's still still playing out. Um, John Byrne also um, did Fantastic, uh, Fantastic Four in the 80s. One of my all time favorite runs of Fantastic Four. Uh, he did Alpha Flight in, in the 80s, which uh, were his creation, mm-hmm. and his Alpha Flight is actually, like, a bop. Mm-hmm. Um, did a bunch of Hulk stuff, including the earliest She-Hulk stuff, which is actually, like, great comics. Yeah, isn't there an entire—wasn't he wasn't he on She-Hulk for a good 60, 70 issues? Yeah, um, and he didn't quite create She-Hulk, but he—like, um, she was on—in his Fantastic Four book, he was one of the the earliest defining voices for her. Mm. For better and, and for worse again. <laughs> yeah. And that that's probably why she shows up here also in the Avengers. Like, she's been an Avengers member, but 
I think she's been following. Burn has been bringing it, bring her from book to book to book to book. That's what it feels like, at least. Um. He, yeah, it's definitely like his little. Uh, I I found the thing I was looking for. So, um, John Byrne has like uh, there's a lot of uh, like juicy gossip that follows him. Okay. Um. Because, like, of that story I just told with Claremont, where he kind of goes rogue and draws the comic differently than when it was written, or intended to be have been written. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's the kind of rude person who will, like, admit, he was like, yeah, I just, I'm brave enough to speak my mind. And then he's an asshole to everyone. Mm. I shouldn't, I shouldn't call people that on the air. That's not very nice. But um, there's also uh, his, his not-so-seemly politics around uh, gender and other social issues have a... Uh, come to light one time and i think there's like one amazing piece of trivia that really crystallizes john burton's place in comics history okay um so uh when burn was in art school in calgary he was writing comics for the school newspaper Mm -hmm. um and he created a um superhero named gay guy Mm. in this 70s college newspaper and gay guy was like him just I don't know, kind of just displaying gay stereotypes and then laughing to himself about them. Okay. But the funniest thing about gay guy is I always see it on like weird lists of who Marvel, where Marvel characters first appeared because technically the alpha flight member snowbird or a character looking identical to her first appeared in gay guy. (laughs) Um, and and that kind of like puts my tone of John Byrne where like, I guess if I was uh, had the opportunity to give John Byrne, much of who, most of whom's work I really love, uh, a, a job today, I would not. I uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's plenty, you know, he's he's written a lot of good stuff, but there's plenty of other talented people who aren't, don't terrorize their coworkers. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I and, and I'm sure gay guy really hurt people's feelings in the 70s, but I feel like it can't hurt us today. We can just like look back on how hilarious it is that this big uh, sector of the Disney Corporation always will have this asterisk tied to this like homophobic uh, track from the seventies. That kind of <laughs> that's kind of just funny to me. I don't know. I feel like uh, nowadays the people who are getting the most hurt are, are people uh, from Disney who care about PR. Mm. But that, that, Culture that's just is my weird difference. sometimes. Yeah, that's my weird. Have you ever uh, read any of those Burn comics or his Superman from the '80s, which is also nope. very good? I don't. Th- I think these are the first Burn comics, at least Burn written comics, I've ever actually read. Yeah, he writes, he draws. I um, his uh, his Superman is the the one I would used to hand people when they were like, "Where should I start with Superman?" Mm. His Superman is excellent. The- that was Man of Steel, right? Yeah, and that was kind of uh, him redoing the origin for the 80s. It was his idea to make uh, Lex Luthor, instead of wearing like neon pink jumpsuits, have him become like a businessman. Oh, that happens, oh wow. That happens in Man of Steel. And that's right, and that's like obviously, and, and that totally unlocked this huge part of the character. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, so uh, Lex Luthor, Dark Phoenix, like Burn has a huge uh, footprint on the comics, especially the superhero world. And um, a lot of the guys we're talking about today seem like real personal terrors. And above all, like I, I, I have regret that the people who they had to work with uh, had to, you know, tolerate them. That's awful. Yeah, it is. But we're looking back at their works more than the people, mostly because we 
don't have the rest of the <laughs> the information on hand. Right. But it's important to bring up. Totally. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are talking about the Eternals, but not the Eternals, because it's in the middle of like 10 different issues of the Avengers. Uh, This week, we're getting into the weird and uh, fallow era of the Eternals, which is the 90s. Yeah, I mean, fallow because there's uh, not a lot of Eternals comics, but like, I don't know, these Eternals are kind of lively. Yeah, they, they surprisingly are. Uh, I'm, I have this one image from one of the issues up on, on my, on my tablet. Cause the only place that we can really read these, at least with ease is Marvel unlimited. Um, yeah, these are nobody's favorite issues. It seems. Yeah. And no one's really collecting this, this era of the Avengers in any meaningful way. Uh, I would say sadly, but eh. I mean, for completion's sake, it'd be nice to have, have them available. But that's what this digital set is for. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the purpose of having an archive like Marvel Unlimited. You know, uh, we complain, but I guess it's better than it used to be. These issues would have been completely, totally without any option of finding them except in back issues. Yeah, and uh, who knows back if we would have even been able to find them. Well, uh, um, they're, they're, they're from the 90s. There are probably a million com issues. Yeah, of I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> but um, starting with Avengers... Number three hundred and eight. Yes. Um, uh, but first, let me let me read off our brick of credits. I was gonna say our credit brick. All right. So for the writers, we have John Byrne for Avengers number three hundred eight through three ten. Bob Harris for issues three hundred sixty one and then three hundred seventy four and three hundred seventy five. Roy and Dan Thomas for Eternals the Herod Factor, and Denny Fingeroth for Avengers Spotlight number 35. For our pencilers, we have Paul Ryan, not that one, for Avengers number 308 through 310, Steve Epting through th- for 361, 374, and 375, Mark Texera for uh, Eternals Herod Factor, and Jim Valentino for Avengers Spotlight. The inkers slash finishers, sometimes they were finishers sometimes they're inkers sometimes they were both um is tom palmer for all of the avengers issues bob mcleod with chris ivy mark mckenna ian aiken and sam de la rosa all for eternals the herod factor and jeff albrecht for avengers spotlight number 35 for letterers we have bill oakley who did avengers 308 310 361 374 and 375 rick parker for 309 gene simek for eternals herod factor and janice chang for avengers spotlight number 35 
And for colorists, we have Christy Scheel for uh, Avengers 308 through 310, T. Fine uh, for Avengers 308, Tom Palmer for Avengers number 361, John Callis for 374 and 375, Mike Thomas and Dana Morsehead for Eternals the Herod Factor, and Renee Witterstatter for Avengers Spotlight number 35. <laughs> Always a lot. Always fun. But at least this what? time it feels like there's a reason for there being a lot of names instead of going, why are there so many names for this 12-issue maxi-series? Well, on the one hand, we're reading very disparate issues, but on the other hand, um, yeah, everyone's fleeing from these creators. <laughs> yeah, um, but all like, right, I haven't that's... heard most of these letterers or colorists. I don't know who... Uh, John Callis has has made it to the modern day. Yeah, he survived. Um, I know some of these guys, but enough about the real people. I want to talk about fake people. I want to talk about the Avengers. You sure you don't um, want to talk about the Eternals? No, I don't want to talk about Eternals. I want to talk about the <laughs> Avengers. Okay. Um, I mean, some of the uh, Avengers are Eternals. So let's. Uh, but starting with this lineup, we got our old pal Wendell Vaughn is here on the Avengers. Remember Wendell Vaughn? Vaguely. His death was the inciting incident that started Nova on his heroic journey in Annihilation. No, that's... Which person's Wendell Vaughn? Kazar. Oh, you're right. I didn't even recognize Kazar. Or Quasar, I guess, just to distinguish him from the caveman Kazar. <laughs> I thought that was Kazar. I don't know why it's not just Kazar. That sounds like a... Kazar. Caveman. There's a hyphen right? in there. I don't know how to pronounce caveman hyphens. <laughs> um, but I was just like, uh, Wendell Vaughn was dull as dishwater here, but uh, I was happy to see him. I, I Did he even get any lines? Um, I just kind of like him for, like, he exists. Uh, this is, like, the backstory that makes him so beloved when he has to get Fridge to be the Obi-Wan for Nova. Mm, gotcha. Um, then, then we got She-Hulk, one of my all-time favorite Avengers. The Eternal Gilgamesh, probably the best Eternal, um, mm -hmm. Thor, Captain America, and T'Challa, all like uh, Avengers you would expect to see, and Namor. What the hell is Namor doing here? He's uh, doing stuff. Well, I think Byrne was writing Namor at the time. Yeah, I guess that was more common in the Bronze Age, especially, like uh, why Power Pack and Thor was always crossing over. Hmm. Or why, uh, when Claremont was writing Iron Fist, all the Iron Fist characters showed up in X-Men? Hmm. I guess so. I was going to say, I thought because, you know, Namor and Captain America have their, you know, their backstories rooted together. And I think this, I don't know when exactly they made the, he was frozen in ice backstory. No, that was in Avengers number one, wasn't it? That's how they explained Captain America coming back. Um, not in the event. Captain America gets unfrozen from the ice in number five, I think. And Namor gets unfrozen from the ice in a Fantastic Four issue. An early oh, Fantastic Four issue. I didn't even know he was frozen in ice too. Oh no, he wasn't frozen in ice. Namor thought he was a homeless person and then the Fantastic Four helped restore his memory. Oh, God, comics are weird. Uh, that's I why love I love it. them. If they, I, yeah, when they're less weird, they get bored. They have to be this weird, minimum. Yeah. But they're, they're, um, they do a lot of talking about the invaders and their time in the war and... and... I found that Which dynamic that, interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of nice because um, 
the Avengers never feel like they have much history before meeting each other. Mm-hmm. And Eternals are only history. They're like endless history. Yeah. So having characters who are similarly long-lived, like compare notes, seemed like kind of an angle. Uh, not much came of it, but like like you said, uh, the Cap and Namor had a cool dynamic. Mm-hmm. For a while. And then Namor was like, I hate everyone. Let me flood yeah, this. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that is a part of the huge dynamic. I feel like Namor's like the Hulk. He's like mighty enough that you want him on your team. And also you want him because if he's not on your team, he's going to get into mischief and, and the world. Mm. Yeah, that's your, fair. Your Hulks and Namor's closer than your friends. <laughs> um, But okay, so that's like a pretty funky, weird Avengers lineup. But that I like that. Before 2004 or so... The Avengers were never Marvel's most popular characters. They were always kind of B-listers. Yeah, and there's there are even more than we just listed back at Avengers Mansion. Well, that's because there's, um, in this miniseries that we're looking at, uh, from 308 to 310, we get to visit a couple of Avengers teams, because this is also the era of West Coast Avengers. Oh, yeah, and I think the start of the Great Lakes Avengers? So I looked it up, um... Great Lakes Avengers, um, what issue did they show up in here? I think it was 309. Um, so the same month that they showed up there, they showed up in their own self-titled miniseries. Oh, okay. This, is, this isn't their first appearance technically, uh, but it's it's was written along with their first appearance because it happened the same month. Gotcha. So this was kind of the cross-promotion. Totally. And, um... And it's great. I loved running into the West Coast Avengers and the Great Lakes Avengers. It really helped. They all have like a different vibe to them. And that was fun. For sure. Yeah, I loved it. But the people at the Avengers Mansion, are those the West Coast Avengers? Or are those the Avengers Avengers Part 2? Which people are you talking about? Like I'm talking um, about um, Hank Pym, uh, Vision, Tigra, yeah, uh, that's Scarlet the West Witch, Coast Wonder Man... And I think that's Janet Pym or yeah, Janet Van that's Dyne. Janet. That's Janet Van Dyne. Yeah, that's the uh, West Coast Avengers right now. Okay, okay, okay. So they were visiting Jarvis and his eye patch. Yes. <laughs> Which is great, right? This is what I mean by these comics are kind of spicy. Just like uh, visiting Jarvis because he uh, has a cool eye patch because of their last adventure. That's like that's pretty fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. And I also noticed a lettering mistake in this this issue uh with wonder man was given hank pym's word balloon oh no <laughs> yeah it was very fun because he's talking and then jarvis is like indeed not dr pym i'm like that's wonder man that's definitely <laughs> wonder man he has a w on his chest yeah uh, he sure does wonder man is like one of my most undercooked avengers who i always wish was a little cooler <laughs> his powers suck but it's fun that he's a movie star. I feel like something could come of that. He's played by Nathan Fillion in the in the TV show. Yeah, technically. Technically. Did that? Sh- I thought thought that was in the deleted scene. That I'd never make it to the. No, Wonder Man's in. Uh... Oh God, am I thinking of something else? Uh, <laughs> I. What I am I? Ever... My brain is melting. Um. West Coast Avengers, though. I like the West Coast Avengers um, because 
they're like a I feel like the Avengers Avengers become this like the highest you know like the the A-League team in superheroes everyone kind of wants to be an Avenger because they're the most uh famous and and mighty yeah West Coast Avengers is more like a, an office where you could like everyone seems like a chill hang um, and eventually you get people like, uh, Moon Knight joins the West Coast Avengers and War Machine. It, like, it, uh, Hawkeye and Mockingbird end up there. That's so weird. It's, like, a much more interesting team of, uh, Avengers, like, uh, Cap and Thor and Black Panther are all very, like, pure and heroic. And, like, Hank Pym and Scarlet Witch and Tigra are all kind of, like, dirty mortal humans. <laughs> and then you've got Vision doing whatever he's doing in this era. This, this is, is White of, Vision. So, yeah, White Vision. This is, like, um, a lot of the MCU stuff is borrowing from the stories of this era. Because this is where the Scarlet Witch Vision uh, romance drama is happening. This is, like, in the middle of their romance when Vision is now emotionless. And so he can't feel love. Yeah, because something was happening the last time we read Avengers. That was when he was starting to really go off the rails. He had his, his best politician smile on after meeting Reagan. God, we've read I've read a lot of Marvel comics. Um, we've read a lot of stars. Avengers. <laughs> yeah, Shockingly. more Avengers than I ever would have uh, otherwise. Yeah. Um, it was MODOK. It was, was Wonder Man in MODOK that I was thinking of is played oh, by in the Nathan Modoc cartoon. Yes. There was, so they filmed the scene for guardians of the galaxy two, which was a flashback to, um, star Lord's mom. And she's going to see a movie starring wonder man. And, and Nathan Fillion was going to be on the poster. Oh. They fi- and they filmed it. There's a scene like he filmed a scene within the movie of the movie within the movie. I think it's a captain America movie. Wonder man is playing cap. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Good gag. And then, then they cut it out. It might be on the DVD, but it was a deleted scene. I, if it's a delete, I'm sure it's on there. But we should probably um, get to talking about these issues. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Avengers go up against the Lava Men in these issues? Um, No, they had previously gone against gone up against the Lava Men. You're right. Uh, in I'm 307. Sorry. The Lava Men were their airplane. <laughs> right, I... Um... <laughs> So I the, went deep into the Lava Men because I was trying to figure out if this was the same Lava Men that appeared in Silver Age X-Men comics. Was it? Were they? I think not. I think those guys were the Magma Men and these were the Lava Men. Ah, it's an important distinction. One lives underground. The other lives above ground. <laughs> I hope that they're uh, they're pedantic like that. that. That is how they live. I really hope so, too. But the... <laughs> inciting incident for these three issues is Gilgamesh was knocked out during his battle with the Lava Men, and thus the Eternals are called in to help, but not before Sprite acts like a complete jackass, uh, and they're palling around in the ruins of, a, of uh, Olympia, catching everyone up with their lovely exposition. We get to see Fastos, we get to see Thena, we get to see Icarus, and we get to see Sprite and his weird pointy chin. Uh, yeah, it's weird and pointy. Um, not this issue, but one of these issues was the most I've ever liked Sprite. Yeah, not this issue. This issue, he kind of sucks, and it's a weird characterization from what we've previously seen. A lot of the Eternals characterizations here really get sanded down, as you were saying, and changed to just kind of being pompous assholes across the board, which is frustrating. Yeah, 
it's not that far a uh, fall for them, though. It's not like they were, like, wonderfully nuanced uh, to no. begin with. No, but you hope they would get more nuance, but instead right, they, exactly. <laughs> they don't. Uh, although I really do like the way Paul Ryan does the art here. Me too. Uh, it's nice. It, it It's solid. Like, everything has detail and it feels full, uh, but it never feels, you know, overly drawn. Sometimes it could be, you know, a little stiff and, and figure-like, but I like that. I like this. I like this. It, it's not... I guess I just... I like his backgrounds. I really do. Everything feels like a place. Yeah, I, um... And Christy Shields' coloring. So good. So I feel good. like the late 80s was kind of the peak for comic book art because we're, uh, you know, like penciling and printing techniques are as far as they've ever come. And we haven't yet gotten the, the image movement that's going to make everything super busy and hard to read. Yeah. And then while now, I was going to say now, I think we have both some of the best art I've ever seen in comics, but also some of the like flattest I've yeah. ever seen because of digital comics and it's nice it's fine but also i wish we could get more of this it's like it's all clean uh and it's easy to follow everything's very expressive yeah it doesn't have the same texture yeah yeah i, I agree with you this is uh, this is one of my favorite eras of comic art mm -hmm. also i'm there's the scene where Sprite goes downstairs and finds the machine or a machine in the ruins of Olympus. I don't know if this is supposed to be the machine that is Earth that we that Kieran Gillen's been dealing with, but it is a big fancy machine and it's like drenched in this ominous orange light. Love that. <laughs> whoever um, I think it was following uh whoever colored Dave Gibbons on Watchmen and the Killing Joke. That's what it feels like. That coloring. Um. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's very the coloring is very flat, but in this way that uh, John Higgins. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the name. Um, it's right in front of me too. I should have just said something. <laughs> um, but like uh, the the everything is like really dramatic. You get these like deep shadows yeah. and bright lights and bold colors and uh. And, and that makes it all, like, um, within the images, everything feels like it's self-contained. Like, there's a couple images within each panel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I could go on about the art. But we get into... Um, so, Cersei is, uh, is all like, um, well, you could wake Gilgamesh up, but, like, he's got the madness. And we, you, got... we can't be having with that. Does he have the madness? I thought he was just, like, unconscious. Um, but that later she says, like, uh, if we wake him up, he's going to go crazy. Whatever. This just pissed me off. I like, uh, <laughs> Cersei, you're not as good as Gilgamesh. What are you even playing at? Um, but now Elias, you texted me, uh, when you were in the middle of reading these and you said to me that there was a particular character who shows up who would have me excited. Yup. And, um, when you texted me, I was like, I'm not sure who you mean. Like, you mean Gilgamesh? Cause he's kind of my favorite eternal, I guess. And then I was like, could it be? Could it be? And then he showed up, and I, I stood, and I Citizen Kane clapping dot gift. <laughs> yes, for in issue three oh nine, they're still trying to fix 
good old Gilgamesh, and they're try they have to find the other Eternals in order to form the Unimind to do you know, blah 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 Eternal stuff. They have to bring Gilgamesh back to life, and Cersei uses her connection to the other Eternals to try and find them. Um, oh no, I'm sorry. Specifically, Icarus and Sprite and everything because Olympia disappeared, but she can still feel them. Turns out, Olympia got sucked into the negative zone. Yeah, and you all and know what that means. When you, you can't go to the negative zone without uh, visiting my good friend King Blastar. If you please. If you please, I... Blastar, <laughs> man, I love Blastar. He's great. He's great. He is not King Blastar here, though. He is just Blastar. Not yet. But he shows up, and he takes out a good number of them for for quite a while, too. Blastar's powerful, man. He's got bombs in his hands. Yeah. And he chose them off. So most of the rest of it is just an extended fight with Blastar, and then some, I don't know, Avengers bullshit that we don't deal with. Uh... Apparently, Blastar had been killed by Annihilus, and now he's back. Because why not? That kind of that makes sense to me. That yeah. tracks with what I know of Blastar. <laughs> um, Let's but, see. Is there uh, anything more interesting with the Eternals in these issues? Well, I was just gonna say. So this is um, this Blastar fight was uh, was just like a, a blast to me. This felt like comics when I was a kid, and I was having a delightful time. Um, I did think it was lame and stupid when um. The Eternals can unexplode because of molecules or whatever. Oh my god, that was dumb. Yeah, it's they they had to re reintegrate their molecules after having been molecularly disassembled, which is the only way to kill the Eternals. It has been established many times that the only way to kill an Eternal is to completely disassociate their molecules with each other. Which, sure, whatever sci-fi bullshit. Uh, that's yeah, what happened I mean, just... to uh, not Vulcan, Vijar, whatever. Uh, Icarus's dad. Uh, I, in that I was Thor having issue. such a fun time with this fight, mostly because of the art, and um, I, I, that's why I, I was so bummed out when, like, oh, it turns out, uh, it turns out we're just like wiping. It just like, it was like such a. They're reminding me to my face that this is a comic book and it's silly. Yeah, but also it's specifically Blastar miscalculated and had the wrong frequency to kill them, which, you know, okay, I, that's have a, funny. I have a soft spot in my heart for this kind of like ass pull in a comic because they don't they don't draw it out that long. It's like one issue, maybe as fine, whatever they, they, they've done weirder and stupider before. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, it's um, it feels it's disposable. It, it's like it's, it feels like a real disposable Marvel comic story that we're reading because it happens to have a couple of Eternals in it. Yeah, exactly, and that's Although, pretty much what happens. I gotta say, uh, the third issue in this set, what is that? A three ten? Yeah, it's um, mostly the I fight with Blastar. Like, yeah, so most of the fight with Blastar, but like Loki shows up. Loki was kind of cool. Where? Where did Loki show? Uh, oh no! Oh yeah, the Warriors Three show up. Bunch of Thor characters um, show up. Yeah, you're right. Lo- Loki is hinting at uh, the Axe of Vengeance crossover, which I think is the most underrated early comics crossover. That happened in all of the annuals, right? Um, I believe it happened through annuals, but do you know the premise of the crossover? Different villains fight 
other heroes than their usual stables. Yeah, and specifically, um, Loki, like, brings them all together, and he's like, guys, guys, we always fight the same guys, and we always lose. What if we shake things up? And the first thing that happens is Magneto's, like, one sec, and he kidnaps Red Skull and just chucks him in a hole because he's a Nazi. And he's like, all right, what were you saying, Loki? And then just roll. It's the best beginning. Um, that's great. That's what, that's what every time you try to... Uh, uh, every time you, you try to bring Magneto together with a bunch of villains, he always takes out the worst one. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it's fun. Like, um, just people you would know. Doctor Doom fights Daredevil and Punisher fights Ultron. Mm. It really feels like they put the names in a hat and drew them randomly. And they're, and the stories are thus pretty delightful. For sure. Although I'm spending a lot of time talking about a comic that's not the one we read. Yeah, they fight Blastar. They fight Blastar. It's fun. It's fine. We reach the end of this and then they all go their merry ways. That's about it for the Eternals for a little bit. For at least well, another uh, year. But the, the, the thread goes from issue to issue with these. It's kind of more coherent than I thought it was going to be. Oh, yeah. It's surprisingly coherent when you're just following the Eternal stuff. Like, there's yeah. not enough... They made sure to, I guess, uh, segment it. But also, I think it's because what we read later is mostly just following up on whatever happened in this, as opposed yeah. to that setting up something else. Well, so specifically, um, Avengers Spotlight uh, number 35. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually... I don't think I'm not familiar with Avengers Spotlight. Do you know like what kind of stuff they usually would cover? So Avengers Spotlight was a, well, you know, Spotlight. It primarily focused on Hawkeye. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I, I have read a couple issues of this. This does look familiar. Yeah. It's uh, according to the opening text box, uh, due to circumstances beyond our control, which is all sentence cased capitalized. Uh, Spotlight's usual headliner, Hawkeye, will not be seen this month, so we can bring you the following book-length epic starring the unforgettable forgotten one, Gilgamesh, who is no longer forgotten, and I have no idea when that happened. I have no idea either. We've read every Eternals issue, so it didn't happen... It probably happened when he joined the the Avengers. It's probably some random Avengers issue where they ran into him, and then he you know, revealed who he was or whatever, or it was a big mystery for a bit, but it had nothing to do with any of the other Eternals, so we didn't read it. But as far as uh, Spotlight 35 is concerned, I kind of loved the format of this issue. I wish they would keep doing stuff like this. Yeah, it's nice to just have like a one-off adventure with a couple characters doing something silly, and it just builds who they are. This one worked, too, because I felt like this is one of the few comics where I really got a sense of history to Gilgamesh. Yeah. You you feel his immortality. And that's the, the frustrating thing about the Eternals is they feel like characters that uh, your DM rolled for you like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> um, and, he, and thus they don't have, you know, their backstory to be determined. And then this Gilgamesh issue, you're like, oh, yeah, Gilgamesh has been like doing his heroic thing fighting beasties for centuries and millennia mm. yeah um and sprites just kind of there messing around but sprite the uh, d- disguises as captain america which was the only time i've ever found sprite funny oh yeah he was that was great i like the way sprite is written in this in this issue i i think both um uh, danny fingeroth gives both of the characters an 
older feeling style of speaking, which does feel a little at odds with what we normally see the Eternals as. I don't know. They just felt their their dialogue. I guess all of the dialogue really felt a little stiff. Yeah, I there's a part of me that likes the dialogue being kind of stiff because that makes them more fun, like fish out of water, like in the first Thor movie or in the Marvel Midnight Suns video game <laughs> when like somebody's just talking in this archaic way and uh, you have to explain to them what ice cream and bicycles are. Uh huh. I I just like that bit. That bit never gets old for me. Fair enough. I yeah, it was. It put me off a little bit, but to each their um, own. I, Weirdly enough, this issue f- feels like it looks like an older comic than it actually is. Which uh, works in its favor, I think. Mm-hmm. The garish pink. Got that <laughs> I th- bright pink background. I think this comic, uh, Spotlight 35, is so far my favorite Eternals that we've read, actually. Really? I just, like, this is the only story where I'm like, okay, I get what an Eternal's ongoing... If an Eternal's ongoing looked like this and was, like, lighthearted about these different, like, tempestuous immortals, uh, I would I would get it. I would see... That's the thing that, um... The Eternals have been, like, wandering the Earth for thousands and thousands of years. Like, the Asgardians are always fucking off to Asgard doing their own thing. And uh, the Inhumans didn't show up to humans until the Fantastic Four showed up. Mm-hmm. But the Eternals, like, could be walking amongst us is the thing that always seemed like a selling point to me. And this issue uh, showed that Gilgamesh is the only cool one because he's the only one who really does it. Yeah, and everyone still hates him. <laughs> well, that's the best part of the Marvel superheroes, that uh, they protect a world that fears and hates them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a otherwise... We weren't sure, uh, at least I wasn't sure if we were going to cover this because it's really only two of the Eternals, but it felt necessary to kind of to read just because it's... You know, it's Gilgamesh and Sprite. They have a lot of fun. Well, and my entire project has been, like, where, what is the Eternals' place in the wider Marvel Comics universe? And mm. um, in the 90s, this was what they were attempting to make it. But it's not what they were trying to do before then with all their, like, half-thought-out Chariots of the Gods stuff. And it's not what they're going to do with their, like, epic cosmic bullshit stuff. It's just uh... kind of, like, cool kung fu superhero stuff that I yep. can dig. So, are you ready to talk about the last three issues? Oh, no. No, we have the Herod Factor first. Yeah, the Herod Factor. Oh, boy. This thing. Um, My notes say, wow, the 90s sure arrived with an explosion, an exact timestamp, and a radical ollie. Oh, yes. You You ever noticed how in 90s comics, scenes always begin, they're just like, uh, Tuesday, 515, the mansion, and they'll always tell you exactly when it's happening? Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I don't know why. Do you? Um, I think it's just like, that sounds like cool military talk and all these 90s writers are a bunch of like army posers. Mm. Except for Larry Hama, who really was in the armed forces. Ah, <laughs> uh, good old Larry Hama. Um, yeah, Larry Hama has cool stuff to say about uh, working as a soldier. But cool informed stuff. We're not talking, um... We're not Larry talking Hama. Larry Hama, unfortunately. Yeah. Because we, uh, Herod Factor is um, bringing back Roy Thomas. And Dan Thomas. I don't know who Dan Thomas is. I'm guessing his brother? I assumed brother as well. Uh, d- nope, we are wrong. Is um, his wife. Oh. Danette. 
Interesting. I also assume brother. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, she was... She's been... She's written a decent number of comics. Yeah, she has written hundred over 100 comics for Marvel. She did an issue of Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. That's cool. <laughs> I like Captain Carrot. Oh, she did um, Shazam! The New Beginning. That I had not Interesting. Read. That is interesting. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Back to um, back to this. So, like, we were in 89. We went into 90, I think. Now we're in 91. Everything is, like, so different looking right now. Everything has, like, a lot of lines. It's really busy. Gritted teeth, tiny feet. The whole shebang, right? The whole shebang. And... No one exemplifies that more, other than Rob Liefeld and the Image crew, uh, than Mark Teixeira, who is, yeah, I tell think... tell me about Mark Teixeira. He is, I would feel, one of the quintessential 90s artists. I think one of the better ones. Uh, his stuff... Here, you can see him trying to figure out, I guess, what his style would be. Have you read the Christopher Priest Black Panther run? Sure, sure have. So he was the artist on a good number of those issues, especially at the beginning. Yeah, I'm seeing that. And yeah, he did, and... Uh, there's a bunch of X-Men stuff by him I've definitely read. Mm-hmm. Some of his Ghostwriter I read. Yeah. And even though, like, I will rag on this book because of how 90s it is, I think this, especially at the time, this art style and this approach to dynamism in, uh, you know, chalk composition of the of the panels and really pushing the poses and and expressions that must have been pretty revolutionary at the time now it feels overwrought and maybe it still felt overwrought then but i really love how just how he lays out a page i i i'm really you're bringing me around i I enjoyed reading it but i i didn't uh i guess i didn't spend enough time appreciating i uh so Jim Lee X-Men was a little bit earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's when this style really arrives. And I, I was so blown away how quickly everyone was like, yep, that's what we do now. Yeah. I mean, there's still definitely parts of his art and this book where I'm like, oh, that's ugly. That's ugly as sin. But the especially, more... Um, mm-hmm. Especially the story and the ideas. Oh, God. Oh, God. The story um, and ideas. But, but uh, like, so I'll let... Yeah. I, I just keep wanting to say, I'm scrolling... Oh, yeah, sorry. We keep talking. I, sorry, I'm just I keep very excited about the Herod factor. I know. I just I turned the page and I just see Mister McBeefy uh, Icarus. Like he's just got all upper body and no waist. <laughs> it's so funny. And then he just is like looking looking straight at you through the panel. He's like, Urgh. um, yeah. Uh, that's God. how Icarus should look, in my opinion. Yeah. So for all of my problems with the 90s-ness of this, I genuinely do think Mark Tissera was a great artist to do this for. And kudos, hats off to him and the rest of the, all of those inkers for making it look as as good as it could have. Definitely a lot of like wonky prep uh, face changes between panels. Like things are not consistent throughout this whole thing. No one yeah. looks the same. I'm realizing, though, one of the things that this comic has going for it that none of the others have had going for it. What is it? Is um, I could tell you the story that happened in here more than I could with most. Like, 
the last story that we were just talking about was like, I don't know, they fought Blastar for a while, then they unfought Blastar and it was over. Or like uh, a bunch of Asgardians are cranky with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this has like a, a mystery and a twist. Uh, there's like a real beginning, middle, and an end of a story. Yeah. Um, which brings me to my question I wanted to ask you, Elias, which is, so you recently read the 1980s novel, The Silence of the Lambs. Is that correct? That is correct. I did. Uh, it feels recent to me. Probably it was a couple months ago. Uh, quite, uh, I think it was over the summer. That, that sounds right. Um, so as a recent Hannibal reader, uh, where do you think that uh, the Herod factor uh, falls in like the 90s serial killer canon? Mm. So this is a serial killer story. It is a serial killer story. Sounds of the Lambs is so much better. And I wouldn't <laughs> even call it a great book. I think even Red Dragon is better than this. And I think Red, Red Dragon is pretty Dragon bad. Yeah, Red, Red Dragon is the, the first one. Um, definitely yeah. not better than Han- uh, Hannibal. is definitely worse than this, though. God, that uh, book sucks. Yeah, Hannibal sucks. Oh. But like, I have to, I have to figure that this is like right at the beginning of Hannibal Lecter sophisticated serial killer mysteries, and they're just like, like, um, like Iron Fist and uh, Shang Chi are are like um, going for kung fu movies, and Luke Cage is going for black exploitation. Now we're the new exploitation genre is serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. It has all of the hallmarks of a serial killer piece of media. And I, and I like that genre as guilty as I am. Cause a lot of it veers into like garish true crime. I can't get enough of serial killer stories. It, it apply. It appeals to some part of us. That's just like, look at this. Look at this. This voyeurism. Um, but so, so this is a a murder mystery where, um, somebody is murdering sets of twins, which already you're like, what dark symbolism could this possess? (laughs) And then we find out there is no symbolism. It's just, they're literally hunting for twins. Well, so then we find out that the, um, the, the real villain in this story is fucking Dr. Damien. (laughs) Hold on. Before we get there, before we get there. Oh my the, god, yeah. Yeah, the the issue or I guess it's technically a it was one of those Prestige graphic format. novels. Yeah. Uh 65 issues, 65 issues, jeez. 65 pages. Yes. Longer than a normal, but not really what we'd consider an original graphic novel nowadays. Um but I think it was it was presented in in a prestige format or whatever the case. It feels a little bit more <sighs> High class is the wrong word for all possible reasons. It feels more like a production, like um, yeah, like a, the every the printing looks a little bit sharper, and um, I imagine that this originally had like a tighter, like a better binding made of glue, maybe than the staples that most floppy comics probably are a square made of. binding too. Yeah, square binding. Um, this is the same format that um, Death of Captain Marvel and God Loves Man Kills. I think this was in the same sort of format. Yeah. Uh, and we are focusing mostly on Thena, Phaestos, Icarus, Carcass, and Reject, who is now going by his name name of Ransack. Hell which- yeah. I don't know which one is funnier, which one is better. Uh, oh, and Sprite's here too. 
Oh, and Sprite's here too. Not as oh, good as in oh, Spotlight. And, and uh and Makari. Makari's here. He gets to run around. He has fun. Oh my god, I didn't even notice Makari being here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because Fastos Fastos takes up most of the most of the panel space. He'll show up. He has the most dynamic poses when he when he first shows up with his hammer in hand and scroll in the other. Good shit. Yeah. Everyone's gritting uh, their teeth. Pure nineties. Yeah. Pure, pure 90s, but, like, that really just, like, injected some life into the Eternals, which I feel like we're doing the same thing again and again and again to Diminishing Returns. Yeah. Yeah. And this is just, like... Right? This this comes in and, like, it's it's not good. It's, like, a, a very ill-spirited story, but, like, this is a really bold idea. Have the Eternals uh, facing off uh, a mad prophecy and a mysterious killer. Mm-hmm. And recapping basically all of the important Eternals comics beforehand, which we have read. I was waiting for them to reference some event we didn't read, and I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's some prophecy that some you know twins will show up and they'll overthrow everyone, and it's, they'll it's rule the world be the for child, all. It's gonna the child, the child of an eternal, twins that are parented by an one eternal and one deviant. Yes. So that's we, decent. That's that's good prophecy. Yeah, it's good prophecy. That Why did like a... they never hear of this beforehand? Uh, that's part of the mystery. Uh, it's not yeah, a good were... mystery, but it's there. All right, I guess that, yeah, I guess that is answered because. Oh, we yeah. About well, do you want to talk about the the de- what happened to the deviants in the meantime? Um, what do you, what do you got to say about the deviants? Well, I mean, we get to check side. back in with Corypheus and Eurydices. Uh, my yeah. favorite eternal deviant couple the only eternal deviant couple of like weird poet man and artist lady um i don't know my, it, i just i, saw, I, I spotted uh crow watch uh called to me because i spotted my man crow yeah crow shows up he has a role to play um but yeah, basically, since the overthrow of the priests in Eternals, the Maxi series, uh, all of Lemuria has descended into a animal farm style Stalinist, uh, Red Scare, I guess, dystopia, where again, everyone is equal, but one is more equal than others. And it's not like a interesting development, but at no. least it's a development. At least the story is marching on. Yeah, and I guess the idea was to try and make a contrast in the like the cold that Cold War way of the Eternals of the U.S. and the Deviants of the USSR, and a little late for that, but yeah, yeah. But that was the vibe I was getting from this. I mean, it's Roy Thomas. He's been writing since since the height of the Cold War. That's true. I can't. I cannot deny Roy Thomas's own history. I suppose. Yeah. But um. But you're kind of hitting the nose on the head there, which is it's um, it's an older vet trying to sound young, and it's unconvincing. It's yeah. hello fellow kids. Yeah, it really was, and it it doesn't work at all. It's just kind of ham handed, and it's there. That's playing around, playing on in the background, and then they continue their hunt for the creature that was killing the twins and the twins. And we find out that the twins are actually Crow and Thena's kids. Yes. Which I was so excited by that. That was like, that was, I turned the page or, you know, pressed right on my keyboard as it were. (laughs) And, um, 
and uh, and like I felt something that that it hit me. That felt like a consequential story reveal. That was the first time that has happened with an Eternals comic yet. Yeah, and then some stupid bullshit about how she transferred the kids to this other human and then deposited her back on the street. And I was like, what? What? It was really convoluted. <laughs> really convoluted. But again, uh, that's not un- uh, unusual for these sorts of uh, no. secret kids. And at least it wasn't at some random woman. Like, she sought out someone who really wanted to have kids but couldn't have kids and helped her dream come true or something. Eh, um, not great, but... And she gives, and they're twins. Do we mention that they're the kids are they're still? Yeah, with them? these these are the twins that the whole thing is about. Yeah, uh, Deborah and Donald. Oh God, these Ugh. these names. These waspy Deborah, names. Deborah, Deborah and Donald. Yeah, these so they get names. a. We get a. We get a, some more fighting. The monster shows up. Uh, I'm like, I don't really care about most of this. We have. Well, we I have want to a, talk about Dr. Damien. Well, I'll give it, we'll get there. I was just trying to think, how do I bring in the weird ruler of the deviants who's just Gar part two and not as interesting? But Old Man Crow. The, old Man Crow was badass. Uh, that guy was supposed to be the leader of the deviants? Yeah, he was. Uh, well, no, he wasn't a leader because death to all leaders. Right. Like, Hag, is that the guy? I think so. Yeah, he's the one who, he's basically the, uh, fuck, what's Hexel, the French Adele. Revolution? Uh, Robespierre. Robespierre? Yeah, he's the Robespierre of the whole thing. Uh, no, yeah, got, uh, Hag is the, is the rebel, Gaur is the one who's, uh... Was the priest from the last one that, that died, because he yeah. had all that power. Uh, Hag, or no, Vizara, Vizara the leader, he gets torn limb from limb. Yeah, that was kind of violent. That was in fitting, and we're in the '90s now. Oh yeah, we're in the '90s. So we find eventually we get the big reveal that yes, Doctor Damien was the guy behind the whole thing. He was holy shit. I was just like, how many months have we been recording these episodes where I'm like, why is Doctor Damien here? Doctor Damien never does anything, and then turns this around is what and- they have him do. Yeah, I, well, it was just like a. I loved that twist because Doctor Damien was such a like useless vestigial character, still clinging on for no reason. So it's not like giving him like a major heel turn was like really sacrificing one of my faves, and um, thus like pinning all of my woes and sorrows on Doctor Damien. <laughs> really, would I, he was fun to hate for me. I loved Doctor rooting against Doctor Damien as a villain. I don't know. And, I I thought it was extra stupid i mean dr damien was extra stupid it's not like he was a smart character you're right making him a serial killer who's like trading false prophecies which i loved because obviously he's been hanging around with the eternals long enough that he like knows what suckers they are for if you're like oh yeah (laughs) i did the magic prophecy they will all listen they will yeah for Uh, sure again this this comic had like a bad heart but like holy shit was it interesting (laughs) That's true. It never it kept you guessing the whole way through and not in a oh this twist was bad. I mean, I didn't like that Dr. Davian was the serial killer even though <laughs> I did. I don't know, I'm so conflicted about it. I wanted him to to kind of I guess it was just because this is the comic where it happens in and and he's been such a nothing character since before this. 
it feels out of nowhere because it is out of nowhere, but it doesn't matter that it's out of nowhere. Even though it's not really out of nowhere, he blamed the Eternals and the Deviants for the death of his daughter, which, you know we what? We read. and is also true. Yeah. They are well, literally it, responsible for it. Is fridging her to motivate him to become a serial killer a good writing choice? No. no but it's a choice. They could have brought Margot back. And still can. Maybe Kieran Gillen will make Margot the key to it all. Maybe, but uh, he's no longer writing Eternals. Um, oh my goodness. We have to, we're going to record another episode where that's going to come up. Eternals or Margot Damien? Eternals. Um, oh, yes. Kieran Gillen Eternals, uh, specifically. Um, what do you think of these? Gu- so we're, wait, was the, the prophecy was false, right? And the twins yeah. just had superpowers? Yeah, the twins are just Thena's kids. Um, and they can form like a gestalt monster kid. No. Who who is that? Didn't they they form together to make? Oh my god! What was his name? Um, I don't know. But the the big monster was Ajax. The big monster. Right. Had... Uh, uh, Doctor Damien like mutates Ajax. That I knew. Yeah. Into this very nineties, very nineties toothy monster. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think they have... Me- no, that's the next appearance of the twins in Avengers, I'm thinking of. Hmm. Yes. And not Avengers we read for today. Uh, ones that came out between them. The twins come back. Um, the only thing I wanted to mention about the twins is I was doing a little continuity dive, and uh, they later show up in an issue written by my guy, John Ostrander. You an Ostrander fan? No, but I know the name. Um... John Ostrander's pro- most uh, famous contribution to comics is probably creating uh, the Suicide Squad yep. in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the twins come together as a character called Dark Angel, which is already <laughs> the name of a different Marvel character and also an okay. underrated TV show with Jessica Alba from the late 90s. Okay. Um, but so people now refer to this. These two twins together are a gestalt entity called Dark Angel who is way too convoluted to be interesting. Like, even worse than the worst Eternal stuff is Dark Angel. Oh, no. Yeah, I bet. Um, and um, the comic ends with uh, a very, like, end to these dark serial killer stories where seeing the monster he was made by Dr. Damien, Ajax kills them both, which is a huge bummer and a sour note to end the story on. Yeah. The, and then afterwards, we we do get that like tearful goodbye between Crow and and the kids and and Thena, and it literally ends with a close up of Crow crying because you know yeah. the best ending to an issue is Crow sad. The best Eternals issue crow. ended with sad Crow. You're right. I I do love me a sad Crow, and uh, you will believe a deviant can cry <laughs> um we've been talking about these issues a long time we still got a bunch to go you want to oh talk God. avengers uh, 361 yeah so 361 through 36 uh, 361 360 374 and 375 are all tied together uh through the introduction of this new thing called the mad weary oh my god so i hated this more than anything oh god so I, I do want to just mention all of this other bullshit Avengers stuff is going on here. 
Uh, in between, there's something about the gatherers. We didn't read any of it. So. Can I just, uh, I want to give a quick, so it's a different lineup and I want to give a quick rundown of the Avengers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. So first I want to, uh, we got a uh, Captain America. Duh. We Duh. have Crystal and like Crystal usually sucks, but she sucks even worse here. She is so annoying. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but then we've got really interestingly Black Widow. And the reason I think that's interesting is Mullet Black Widow Black has, Widow. what's that? Mullet Black Widow. Yeah. Black Widow with very uh, 90s hair. Um, but what's notable here is, unless I'm mistaken, this is Black Widow's first run as an official member of the Avengers. Despite being the girl one in the movies and thus made very prominent, Black Widow hasn't been actually a member of the Avengers that much. Interesting. Um, after the movie started coming out, they just started acting like Black Widow was always like a classic Avenger and uh, their greatest hero. But like, we're this is the beginnings of her time with that team. Hmm. Um, we've also got, uh, Hercules, who's a great Avenger. He's like Thor, but more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cersei, who is our reason to tear of why we're talking this arc. Uh-huh. Um, Black Knight, aka Dane Whitman. Um, he's and the sad boy of the team. He's the sad boy of the team and my favorite character in the story, obviously. <laughs> um, and Weird Vision. Um, still going through like weird emotion stuff. Kind of, because this is fake vision we meet in 361, and then real vision comes back in 374, and yeah, or at least, or maybe he comes back at the end of this one, because he's trapped in a tube. Yeah, he escapes the tube and is still still trapped by the Gatherer. Spoilers um, for the Gatherer saga, if yeah, anyone the, cares. The... The widely beloved and critically acclaimed Gatherer saga. Yeah. And then for on the Eternal side, we've got good old Icarus, also sporting a very 90s haircut. Sprite, again, <laughs> with a big pointy chin. And then who I thought was Ajak, but he's dead, as we saw in the Herod Factor. But this is Apex, a guy who was introduced in this issue and has two appearances his next appearance, I believe, is when he is killed. Wow. It turns out an Eternal can die if they're that lame. Yeah. Uh, if they're the, the lame copy of an already pretty lame Eternal. I mean, he may not even be dead. It may just be his name showed up in that big list. Oh, right. I don't know. But this you know, is his first appearance. To, because I think We're going to have to do an episode one. where we go down all 100 of those Eternals on that Kieran Gillen list, aren't we? We are. I think it's going to be fun, actually, because we'll be like, oh, I know more of these now. <laughs> Jesus, we will find out. Um, okay, yeah. but so what's I can kind of uh, summarize my feelings about this story thusly. Mm -hmm. It's about Cersei is going mad because of some sort of Unimind malarkey, right? The Brethren Unimind? Yeah, because the Unimind doesn't exist anymore because all of the rest of the Eternals fucked off into space. Right, so um, this is like a janky, like unplugged Unimind, I guess? Yeah, you can't... Um, or the idea is the the Unimind is basically your 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 backup. You, 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 they're a flash drive. And the flash drive gets full, and when a flash drive gets full... Cascading errors happens, uh, and the Unimind was where they could offload data into the, you know, into the cloud or whatever. Into the machine called Earth. Into the machine called Earth. Uh, however, now that the Unimind has 
again, fucked off into space. They haven't, they don't have enough Eternals on Earth to form a Unimind, which is weird because apparently they can form a Unimind with humans and whatnot. So, whatever. Yeah, like other characters have entered the Unimind before and been like, "Wow, it's weird in here." Yeah. So that's the explanation for why she is going mad. And there's a, um, I guess this was just an Avengers plot point that Bob Harris had introduced earlier where she had formed a fake Unimind with, um, well, with non-Eternals, even though such cross-species contact has always been strictly forbidden. (laughs) Whatever. Um, I don't know. We didn't read those issues. It doesn't matter. Um, They're mad at her, uh, and she's apparently starting to crack up. Uh, Which sucks. Like, it sucks when we do that to uh, Scarlet Witch every five minutes, and this sucks even more, because at least with Scarlet Witch, there's, like, uh, some pathos. But at the core of this, I realized this isn't really a Cersei story. This is a Black Knight story. Yeah, and it sucks. Well... It does suck because I like the Black Knight. I like his stuff, but like, yeah, I wanted to see a Cersei story. I do want to see a good, like, uh, I came out of this, like being like, oh, I kind of like Black Knight. I should read more of his stuff. But yeah, Cersei just, uh, is more boring than ever at the end of this. Yeah. She doesn't get a lot to do and she's kind of thrown to the wind by Dane. God, Dane and Crystal. Damn it, Dane. we also, yeah, and then also uh, there's, like, a lot of, like, guys messing around on their ladies, which I feel like is a big uh, yeah. Avengers plot point in this era. Um, hey, and Quicksilver by the doesn't. This... Quicksilver sucks in a different way. <laughs> oh, um, and every single goddamn credits page is a two-page spread you have to turn on its side. So mad. Yeah, you were texting me about that. It was even, it's even worse uh, when you're reading it on a desktop and you, you have to like literally stand on your head. Oh, it's terrible. Um, did you catch... So like this story has to do with there's a guy... They're in an alternate universe and there's a guy called the Proctor and uh, he is very concerned with what Cersei's going to do when she goes crazy and uses her powers or whatever. I guess... No, Proctor, he's he's here on the Earth. He's the leader of the Gatherers, and there are a bunch of people from alternate universes. And I don't know, man. It, I don't well, okay. know. We had Jocasta, who's uh, the wife of Ultron, bride of Ultron. Okay. And then there's a uh, Silver, who I was like, uh, don't know, don't care. Uh huh. As well as um, Rick. And Tarkus, but did you catch there was an alternate universe version of Korg, the character later played by Taiko Ayatiti? I didn't notice. That's who that rock guy was supposed to be. Oh my god. Um, and that was kind of the highlight of this. Also a highlight, how did you feel about this very early Epting artwork by Steve Epting? Very weird. I kind of loved it. I feel like later Epting like refines his uh, art almost too clean, and I kind of liked the fuzz here. Yes, everything I, felt very lived yeah. in and dusty. Yeah, for sure. A lot of nice shadows. I love the um, shadows. Yeah, it does... love the shadows. Actually, I think what happened was when he transitioned from traditional to digital, it got cleaner, and the shadowing got uglier because digital shadowing in that era is like 
especially like when he's doing Captain America, it's good, but it's like not great. But his traditional shadowing, like the that inking, real good. And I think that might also be down to the inkers on these on these issues, who was Tom Palmer. It, it's so interesting how much uh, the theme of our podcast is often when comics went digital and how that was an awkward period. Oh, yeah. We well, come back was. to that a lot. Yeah. Everyone had to I, learn. Um, so ultimately, uh, these issues by Bob Harris are um, even more of like a sour bummer than the previous serial killer comic. Like 90s sexism and laziness is in full swing. Um I kind of was walked away uh, jazzed about Black Knight in a way I wasn't expecting, and I enjoyed the artwork enough to pull me through. Like I wasn't totally, uh, I was never bored. I was always looking at something I like looking at. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think also I'm just of an age where this it hits a nostalgia button in my brain that Jack Kirby, even Jack Kirby, doesn't. And like this feels like a fun comic book, and I'm not going to get another one, so I'm gonna have to read this issue a thousand times. <laughs> It's funny because it does not do that for me uh, this entire time, especially when I got to 374, 375. I was like, just get me through this. I was, I saw 48 page special. I went, oh God, no. Um, Uh, It was fun seeing the Twin Towers get Art (laughs) Decoized. The Brooklyn Bridge was, had apparently been destroyed and is now back. I, feel I like, really uh, the like Towers the Proctor's got... chin. I don't know. The There's Twin something Towers got fun knocked about... down a lot of times in Marvel oh before 9-11. Yeah. I have an issue of damage control where they have to fix the Twin Towers. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I thought... I love how the big... Re- so the big reveal of the Proctor is that he's the alternate universe Dane Whitman. I'm like, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, that didn't feel like a twist to me either. Yeah. Like, the, Dr. Damien being a serial killer uh, and the kids being uh, Thena and Crows, those made me gasp. But finding out the Proctor was Dan Whitman, I was like, of course he is. That's how these alternate universe stories work. Yeah. Um, very by the numbers, but with, like, now with extra sexism. Mm-hmm. So, the end of these issues, we don't actually get a lot of eternal stuff. It's a lot of Avengers wrapping up. But then Cersei and Dane Whitman walk off into a portal to somewhere, another universe, and they're gone because that way Cersei doesn't go mad. She doesn't go mad! And we're only two years out from Onslaught. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, and then there's a backup story about Hank Pym, and it's fine. I did not actually finish that. Yeah, I, it's fine. There's no need to talk about it. Um, it has um, nothing to do with the Eternals. I, it's so unfortunate that I can't recommend a lot of comics from this era because, like, stylistically, this does it for me. But this is such a good example of why I don't advise returning to '90s superhero stuff a lot. Yeah, it's hard to gel with, especially nowadays. Also, there was some good stuff, and. I actually really liked the art here. Steve Epting, it was it was very 90s, but it wasn't, like, overly 90s. It wasn't the, the, Rob Liefeld di- at his worst. There's, like, real dynamism here. Like, yeah. uh, I feel like bad 90s art just looks like a... It looks like snow to me. Like, everything is just... There's a whole lot of uh, of chaff, and it's hard to get out a clear, clean image. Mm-hmm. And this has, like... Like, when someone, like, throws a punch, that you, you feel the power, like you would hope. Yeah. 
who is it? There was a, so Panel X Panel did a run of four kind of longer form deep dives into subjects. And one of them was called Excess, which was specifically about Rob Liefeld in the 90s. And I thought it was very illuminating for me and this era in that the it posits the reason why Rob Liefeld got big and was hired in the first place was he did revolutionize comics again because there had been a trend towards kind of this lower energy, lower key art, which was much more subtle, much more um, atmospheric. And he was like, no, we need to bring back the action of the 70s and the 60s and whatnot. You know, the big posing, the the really pushing things. Uh, and at first it worked, but then all of his faults came through once he was actually given free range to do anything. Um I, but it almost makes I, me wonder, mm-hmm. just there's an alternate reality where like one piece was different and that style continued for a much longer time. Yeah, but we see here, I think we, we're seeing here that ethos done better of what if we updated some of the the, you know, approaches to superhero comics that we've kind of shed over the last 10 or so years since Watchmen, since Dark Knight Rises, uh, Dark Knight Returns, since I don't know what big Marvel book would have been there. Craven's I Last found, Stand? Uh, Craven's Last Hunt. I Hunt. Uh, I found this uh, story that you read. This looks great. I'm definitely excited to read this, this excess. Oh, yeah, it's great. It looks awesome. Um yeah, so at the end of the day, I would say that in terms of Eternals continuity, this does no favors. This is, like, no. terrible for continuity, actually. Oh, God. Um, in terms of making me, like, enjoy reading an Eternals comic, this has been my favorite week so far. Interesting. Um, but in terms of, like, a comic that I would not be embarrassed to recommend, we did not read a single one of those this week. No, so this I would is... not recommend any of these to anyone. <laughs> I would call this week my guilty pleasure week. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're going to get another one of those uh, next time because we're going to be reading after a break episode, uh, Heroes for Hire Volume 1, numbers 4 through 7, The New Eternals, Apocalypse Now, number 1. Kind of small, but uh, that's basically all of the Eternals stuff until... uh, Eternals Volume 3, which is unsurprising considering what we just got. I'm so excited. We're doing some Ostrander issues next time. And when I was a kid, I had a bunch of these Heroes for Hire issues, and I loved this series, and I don't Ooh. remember it at all. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of fun. I've never read these. Um, if you're looking to read them in a collected edition, they're actually available. Uh, New Eternals Apocalypse Now is in that big Eternals Complete Saga Omnibus. I think it's also, I think it's just a one shot. Um, It's also called Eternals The New Breed, if they've ever reprinted it. Uh, And then Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and the Heroes for Hire Volume 1 collects Heroes for Hire number 4 through 7. Nice and simple. Uh, yeah, more than last time. I'm like I said, I'm excited. I think this is gonna be my favorite week because then we're gonna get like ponderous again. Ooh, yeah. I'm uh, I, I, I'm fearing what's coming after that. But um, but till then, Jaina, 
Where can they find you on the larger interwebs? It's getting harder and harder these days, but uh, I'm still posting, of course, on multiversitycomics.com, which uh, remains a pretty great website. And uh, sometimes I contribute to other websites too. And I haven't been on Twitter, but if you wanted to go there, my account still exists. It's at rambling underscore moose. And if you wanted to find me on Tumblr, where I've been playing around recently, you can find me at ramblingmoose.tumblr.com. How about you, Eliza? Did you uh, start back up your old Tumblr? No, I still haven't. I I think I need to uh, recover my name. I think it got sold off or whatever because I left it unused for so long. Uh, I don't know if I'm going back. Uh, I still have a Twitter. Also have not logged in in like two months or something. Uh, But if you wanted to follow me there uh, and then see where I'm going next, uh, you can follow me at Quetzal-ish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. The name is written on a scroll that I made up and then hid in Dr. Damien's uh, wine cellar. Uh, you can also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com. And if you ever want to email me, email, I know. Uh, I have a Multiversity Comics email. Uh, it's just erosner at multiversitycomics.com. Feel free to reach out. Yeah, pop a message over. Yeah. Uh, please, please don't be mean. That's uh, <laughs> m- mean or hateful. Uh, I-, I would appreciate not receiving those in my email inbox. A good rule in general that the writers of these comics could have definitely learned for sure until then excelsior